Jesus' name, amen. So I was reading a quote this week. In his book, Greg Easterbrook quoted several recent studies, well, they were recent in 2016, about forgiveness. And here are some of the findings. Being a forgiving person is essential to leading a contented life, he writes. Even when someone wrongs you, he says, feeling fury or experience, experiencing hate only causes your life to descend into unhappiness and resentment. Then you are the one who suffers, not the person you are angry at. That's one of the major findings. Another major finding. People who do not forgive wrongs committed against them tend to have negative indicators of well-being, stress, depression, cardiovascular disease, so they only hurt themselves. This is not news to many. The people who do not forgive have higher rates of divorce, which reduces well-being. Now, this is true because married men and women consistently do better on health barometers, especially longevity and and incidents of depression, than do the separated, the divorced, or the never wed. If you've been divorced, you understand that. Many divorced folks do know that. I'll hear a few uh, that needed to be divorced, but most divorced people regret their divorces. People who forgive as a group have fewer episodes of clinical depression and better social support than the unforgiving. Social support means friends and family. So forgiving people are better at making friends than those who carry grudges. Older people are more likely to forgive than the young are. Now this suggests that the ability to forgive is a form of wisdom learned during the passage, passages throughout life. Right? So it's a form of wisdom. This is an art that we develop. Everyone knows that teenagers and young adults are, on the average, more hot-headed than the mature. And this study shows that hot-headedness declines not because people lose the passion of youth, but rather because they acquire the wisdom of experience. That's one of the reasons our culture is so in trouble right now. We value the wisdom of youth, not the wisdom of age. Our culture right now says we have to learn from the young, not from the old. Our culture right now is exceedingly foolish. Older people are more likely to forgive than the young are. And the older people who forgive have better overall health indicators than those who nurse resentment. Benefits of forgiveness seem to benefit with age. Right? An older person with a forgiving attitude may be rewarded with fewer stress disorders, longer life, and other health benefits. Have you ever seen someone who never forgave? Have you ever seen an older person who has held grudges their entire life? What are they like? If you've run into that kind of person, you see what's happened. They've destroyed all their relationships. They've destroyed their families. They've destroyed those around them. They have become, and they can, you can see it in their faces. Their faces kind of pucker up. Their whole lives are like that. Nobody wants to be around them, right? I can't understand why my kids don't want to talk to me. I can't understand why my brothers and sisters don't want to talk to me. I can't understand why my life is so miserable. Because you make it miserable. Have you seen an older cheery person? Everybody wants to be around them. Their children want to be around them. Things seem to go well for them. Why? Because they make their life happy and cheery. So forgiveness, it seems, has a lot of health benefits. So why not do it? Well, that's not the reason God calls us to forgive, as we will see this morning. That's not actually what the Bible teaches. 
But it is interesting, isn't it? Matthew 6, 14 says this. If you forgive others their trespasses, you will reach enlightenment. And you will reach self-fulfillment. And you will be truly happy. So therefore, forgive so that you may be a truly awesome person. And Jesus is really concerned about self-fulfillment and the enlightenment. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. That was the wrong book. What? Oh. Ah. No, that's not what Jesus says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, which means sin, doesn't mean crossing on the wrong land. <clears throat> that's why sometimes I don't like that, uh, that translation. For if you give others their amartia, right? I have people that tell me that all the time. We need to say the old King James Version of the Lord's Prayer. The word is amartia. That's what the Greek says. It doesn't say trespasses. It says sin. If you forgive their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, that's a pretty, I don't like that passage, by the way. That's uncomfortable to me. I've never liked that. I don't want to have to forgive your sins so the Lord will forgive my sins. I mean, that's just not comfortable. If someone sins against me, I don't want to have to forgive them all. Now, sometimes I do, but most of the times I don't, right? I mean, think about that. How many of, it's easy when somebody does something light, but how about when they've done something really bad? And parents, parents, how many of you have gone to ask for your children's forgiveness? When they've, um, that's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? Child, forgive me. I did something wrong. We don't want to do that. That really tests your ability to ask forgiveness, doesn't it? We don't like saying that. We have to swallow our pride. But it's much worse when someone's done something really bad to you. Right? Asking forgiveness from our child is one thing. That tests our pride. But when someone's done something really dark to you, really deep to you. That's when this comes in. And you know what I'm talking about. If you've been abused, if you've been assaulted, if you've had someone break into your house and steal from you, right? I mean, there are horrible things that go on in this world. Like in our country, we pretend like some of the things that happen are bad, but there are things in our country that are twisted and dark. We have a sex slavery industry in this country that is really bad, right? That is really twisted and bad. In fact, we're in one of the biggest corridors in the nation, right? Between Atlanta, Birmingham, Montgomery, Huntsville, Nashville, Memphis, Chattanooga is one of the biggest sex trafficking areas in the country. And those people, when they're used up, children, women, boys and girls, women, as they get older, when they're used up, they're executed, they're killed. There's some dark and twisted things that happen. When Jesus says forgive, he means it. It's hard. There's some dark things. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So our gospel passage says it rather bluntly. And Jesus says we as believers are called to forgive or our sins will not be forgiven. And this is why we fence the table at communion. What do I mean by fencing the table at communion? Where do we do that? Well, it's when we say, you that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins 
and are in love and charity with your neighbors, right? Right up here. You intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways. Draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament to your comfort and make your humble confession to Almighty God. There's a variety of forms of fencing the table. That's what we say before we come for communion most times. And we're kind of out of order the way we do communion right now during COVID. But that's usually what we say. This is what we mean for who can come for communion. You have to be in love and charity with your neighbors, and you have to intend to lead a new life with God. This is all our altar call. Are you, li- are you going to live? Have you repented from your sins? But also, are you in love and charity with your neighbors? Which means, if you're in unforgiveness with anybody, you better not do this. It also means, and I've had this happen, People walk the aisle, uh, Jeff, uh, uh, I'm in unforgiveness against you, please forgive me, give me the, no, 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 no. You got to sit down and reconcile. You don't walk over to someone, uh, I'm mad at you, please forgive me. That's not it. That's cheesy. You sit down with the person, you go out, you reconcile. That's what Jesus means. Otherwise, you be a big boy and girl and you cross your arms like this. And you receive the blessing. We all do it. Chris does it. I do it. Right? If you're in the fight, you go and reconcile. Because this is a sin. You're sinning. You're not fooling God. Right? When you do this, God still sees you. Now, you know what I'm talking about. When you're a child, you play peekaboo and you think you're hiding from God. Right? We think our parents don't see us. That's why children are so amazed. When they cover their eyes or you put a thing over their head when they're a baby and you take it off, they really think, Piaget does a study, they really think that you've disappeared and you pull it off, they really think you've appeared. So your child thinks you're godlike. That's why they think you're so awesome. Then they become teenagers <laughs> and they, you lose that veneer and that's why they don't like you. And then they get to about sophomore year in college and they begin to think that you're like really wise again because their, their lives kind of fall apart again. And they really think, wait a minute, that veneer comes back. I promise you, parents, you will get wise again. You just lose it during those teenage years. It's just natural. It gets them out of the house, by the way, so please embrace those teenage years. I'm an empty nester. You want to embrace those teenage years. You want them out of your house. Yeah, I just promise you that, the parents who don't, I'm telling you years later, you're like, why didn't I embrace the, <laughs> anyway, sorry. What this means is, to partake, you must be in a state of forgiveness. Because this is the state in which we as believers are called to exist. Does that make sense? We're called to exist in this state. We as believers, and this is what I want you to get, don't forgive because of its wonderful health benefits. Rather, it's evidence of how we are made. Those health benefits work because that's how God made us to work. We function best when we're doing what we're made to do. We're built in the image of God, and therefore we're built to be in a state of holiness. First Peter 1, 15 to 16. But he who called you is holy. 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So love is one of the key attributes of God. God is love. We read that. Now, love is not God. God is love. God is a simple being. You are a complex being. You are made up of many things. God is who he is. Love is an attribute of God. God is also holy. Love is a component of God. And so to be holy, to be like God, and to love like God, requires that we forgive others of their trespasses because when we fail to do this, we become embittered. We hold on to hate. Hate is the opposite of God. It's failing to obey the Lord, and that is a sin, right? Yes, it's a sin to obey the Lord, to fail to obey the Lord, but at a deeper level, it's a sin because it's a lack of love, right? So at a shallow level, we obey because the Lord told us to obey. When we're little, we obey because mommy and daddy said do the thing. When we're older, we obey because we're wise and we understand why we do the thing. Right? Don't stick your finger in the socket. Okay, mommy and daddy. Later, we obey because we know to stick our finger in the socket kills us. It's the difference. Later, we obey because we understand why and this is who we are. An immature Christian, and I run into this all the time later, I obey because the Lord told me this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay, that's fine when you first start. But when you've been a Christian later on, and you're still saying that, oh my gosh, stop, grow up. It's okay to laugh. You're supposed to laugh at that. If we uh, hold on to hate, it's failing to obey the Lord. And that is a sin. But it's a deeper sin because it's a lack of love. This is what John 4.20 says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the crux of his teaching behind forgiveness. All right? So that's what it is. How does this relate to our passage this morning? Well, this is what King David and the people of Israel are facing in our chapter this morning. Absalom is defeated. He's no longer the king. He's no longer the rebel. David has crushed him. He's killed him. Right? He's dead. But now the healing must begin. Healing has to begin. What do you do with a broken kingdom? You have to restore this kingdom. How do you restore this kingdom when a rebellion has happened? When 20,000 people have just died. There's a lot of bitterness. Brothers, fathers, sons lay dead on the battlefield. People are embittered. People want revenge. What in the world? How do you piece this kingdom back together? There's one group of people that contains those who were loyal to King David who could not flee with him, who stayed in Jerusalem. They were abandoned by the king, or so they thought. And do they really want this guy back? You bailed on us, David. Then there are the leaders of the rebel army. They lost the war, and now they're fearful for their lives. Do we really want to do this? We could lose our lives. Do they want to fight to the death? Do they want to flee? Do they hold out? Now there's David and his army who are also in this. Do they want to rub it in? 
Do they want to kill everybody? This is what happens all the time, right? In our current political system, this is what happens. One side wins, we rub it in. The other side wins, we rub it in, right? We don't want peace now. We're taught this. We're, we're not really taught this. I'm reading I'm watching this whole video on, on social media and what it's doing to us and how we're just kind of encouraged to just egg it on and egg it on and egg it on because that gives them views and advertisements and buy more things and stokes up our hatred. David and his army are also in this, so they've won. It's a white-hot mess. You know what I mean by a white-hot mess? Have you ever seen when you stick iron in a fire? It gets red-hot, then it gets yellow-hot, and then when it gets really, really hot, it gets white-hot. This is a white-hot mess. Why is it a white-hot mess? Well, it's a white-hot mess because in all this, there needs to be peace. There needs to be a wise leader. They need a wise king. The unfortunate thing, though, is their king is not wise right now. He should be leading at this time. And at the end of this battle, when this rebel king, when this king who was a murderer, when this king who turned against his people, when this king who rebelled against his own father, who murdered his own brother, when this king, this rebel king, turned against David, the rightful ruler of Israel, who saved his son, who didn't execute his son, who turned against Joab, who who saved his butt, when he did all this, when he turned against this guy, this king who, because of his rebellion, 20,000 people died. When this man dies in the battlefield, and David's people now return, instead of rejoicing, you find David weeping, weeping over the fallen king. Saying this in 2 Samuel 19.1, it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning. The people are returning in grief. What in the world is happening? They've got a slobbering father. How in the world? What's going to happen? This guy is blubbering over the defeat. And so Joab comes and says this, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal and who are ashamed when they flee the battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. His entire army and the people are ashamed of the victory. They've just gone out and risked their lives for him. They've died for him. They've watched people slaughtered for him. And he is weeping and crying for the man that just slayed their brothers and fathers and sons. It's an awful scene. We saw that last week. King doesn't get it. He's a leader. He doesn't have the luxury of grieving for his son. You have to be there for his people. But David is fortunate to have a good friend in Joab, or at least a friend who will say the thing that needs to be said. And this is often the first step in coming to terms with your sins against another person. Having a person who will speak honestly into your life. Do you have that person? These people come in different flavors. Now, some are sweet and diplomatic. That's not me. 
Some are elegant and charming in their speech. That's not Chris. Some are blunt like Joab. That is probably both of us. Yeah. I think Scott's probably sweet and diplomatic. He doesn't mince words. He sees what's going on. And he walks straight into the king. This is, when you're not sweet and diplomatic, when you're straight and blunt, this is what a leader needs. He tells him how it is. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. You have today saved your, who have today saved your lives and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if it were Absalom who were alive, and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. What? If Absalom were alive, and all of us were dead, you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise. Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and it will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Worse than what Nathan did. Worse than your murder of Uriah. Worse than sleeping with Bathsheba. Worse than anything you have done. Stop slobbering. Get up. Get out there and do the right thing. That's what Joab says. You're pathetic. Your son was wicked. Stop blubbering. Stop pretending otherwise. You're crying for what never was. We all do that. I see people who all the time when they're their husband who beat them or <clears throat> alcoholic, whatever was awful to them, was mean to them, was cruel to them. You may have a parent who was just a terrible person. You may have had a child who was a terrible person. They die and you have this memory of them and you be begin pretending, oh, but that memory is of a person who never was, of a relationship that never was. And you begin grieving a thing that never was instead of the thing that actually was. And that's what's happening with David. And Joab is telling him that never was. Stop pretending. Wake up and get out with the people who actually loved you. You were loving a man who hated you and everyone who loved you. And in doing this, you're punishing everyone who loves you and sacrificed for you. So it's the first step in seeking forgiveness, coming to term with the reality of what you've done, and when you're presented with it, changing. The next step is asking forgiveness, followed by changing your ways. We aren't clued into David conver David's conversations here, but we were told that he took a seat at the gates. And this is what he means by that. <clears throat> when he took a seat at the gates, David changed. He went out among the people, and he began the hard work of reconciliation. And this is what he means by reconciliation. Look, when you ask forgiveness, it doesn't mean that things are going to get easy. It just means that the dam 
is uncorked. We kind of remove the dam so the river begins moving again. So a lot of times when you have unforgiveness in your family, whether it's with bitterness or anger or whatever it is, and you go and ask for forgiveness, and the forgiveness happens, then the dam is uncorked. The river can begin moving, and you can begin starting to fix the problem. The problem isn't instantly fixed. Now you've just uncorked it, and you can begin fixing the problem, whatever the problem was. Now that may be hard work. In your marriage, you may have had a bunch of problems. You ask forgiveness. You begin now working on the marriage. What was the problem? I need to start working on the problem. I got to change. You got to change. We got to start working through some difficulties. My child, if I've been doing things that are wrong, I've got to start working on the problem, right? If I've been an alcoholic, I got to really start working to change. Give up the alcohol. Got to start working through it. If I've been abusive, I got to start doing that. If I've been a workaholic, I got to really change. Change jobs maybe. Do whatever. I've got to make a radical change. I ask for forgiveness, and then I've got to change. And this is what David does. He sits at the gates. See, David isn't called a man of God because he's perfect. He's called a man of God because when Joab says, wake up, you fool, David doesn't kill him. David says, you know what? I was a fool. I was a fool. I sit at the gates, I humble myself, and I change. That's why David's a man of God. That's why David is a man after God's own heart. Kings sin greatly. (laughs) They have a lot of power. We don't understand that. David changes. He's a man after God's own heart. And so he works out a resolution with the country, including the general of the opposing forces. Think about this. The general of the rebel army, most kings would kill him, but not David. David reaches out to him and makes him the commander of his armies. Think about that level of forgiveness. This guy was trying to kill you. Not only do you forgive him, you say, I'm going to make you the commander of my army. That's what David did. It's the ultimate act of forgiveness. In that, he foreshadows the son of David, Jesus. David is a man of Yahweh. He loves the Lord so deeply that love permeates through him. It is who he is. When we truly love God, and we'll end with this, when we're truly living for Jesus, when we're truly living in the Holy Spirit, there will naturally be a difference in our actions. It will not come about through simply trying to obey a commandment out of duty It will come about because it's who we are. So forgiveness is first and foremost an act of love. To forgive deeply, one must know deep forgiveness and deep love. That you've got to be living in Jesus Christ. Deep forgiveness is an act of God working through us. It's evidence of how we are changing and becoming more Christ-like. We may start forgiving because we're commanded to do so, and that's the right thing. But for the mature believer, eventually, we, for, we will forgive because that's who we are.